women, if you want something in a particular way, get it. I'm Gil Galanos, and welcome to Storymark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them, and the mark they leave. On today's show, technologist and former chief scientist of Israel, Dr. Orna Berry. Dr. Berry is known to many as the undisputed first lady of Israeli high-tech. She's a scientist, researcher, entrepreneur, investor, policymaker, corporate manager. She's kind of done everything. Her experience is one of a kind. With a PhD from USC, University of Southern California, she created Ornet, the first Israeli startup to be acquired by a European company. She then went on to become the first and only female chief scientist of Israel. And that's just the beginning. What I admire most about Orna is that she's a trailblazer who's broken every glass ceiling in her way. But before all her success, Orna had an influential experience in a place that all Israelis go through, the military. She was serving in the late 60s during Milchemet Atasha, the war of attrition, an ongoing conflict between Israel and its neighbors in the aftermath of the Six-Day War. There, she was thrown into situations where her managerial capabilities were not only put to the test, but were molded before her very eyes. I went to serve in the Air Force, and uh, I became an officer. Supposedly, it was an administrative role, but it turned out that this was the war of attrition. Pilots who were guiding the cadets were also flying in regular squadrons. So every time there was a need, they came out of the flying school and went back to the regular squadrons. Sometimes they didn't have enough people on the ground to actually take over, and I took some initiatives myself. Wow, so flight school teachers had to actually fly in the war, and in their place you started teaching cadets. That's incredible. But before we jump into your entrepreneurship, I want to ask you about your home life. Your father, Yoash, was a famous IDF general who became a Knesset member. That's a politician in Israel's parliament. I imagine that's a strong influence to have at home. What was it like growing up with him? When I was a child, of course, uh, the women were normally number twos of uh, men. And I say that uh, this was very good education because I'm still looking for number one to follow. And until then, I do what I want. And, you know, I'm 71. So, so it's been for a long time that I'm in the look after somebody to follow. I adopted a lot my father's thinking. For good or bad, the scale of it, the national value, this is coming from my father. My mother is very smart, but she would always play second place when he was back home. He was away many times and she handled fantastically. But when he was around, she would go to second place. I didn't adopt that. And if I understand correctly, you also followed your dad's scientific background into academia, right? When I finished my service, I wasn't really planning an academic career. 
I finished my last exam, undergraduate in statistics, and took my professor. He needed to go back to pretty much the same area where I lived. So I took him back. So he asked me, what are you going to do next? So I told him, I'm going to work. And he said, you know, I won't tell you that you're smart, but I'll tell you that people who are less uh, smart than you are are doing PhDs. He said, I'll write for you letters of recommendations. So knowing your future career, it's natural that your PhD was in computer science, but I also know that it took you quite a while to get there, and you were even turned off by computers at the beginning. What were the early days of computer science like? So long as we needed to use punched cards in computers, I wouldn't approach computers. <laughs> When I took a programming class, we were completely detached from the machines. We would write on a paper a program in a particular programming language. Then we would sit and punch cardboard cards with machines, and then we would uh, wrap them and put them in a bin uh, for somebody to take them in and compile them and execute them and bring back the response. My major concern was that I will spill the cards on the floor and I will have to resort them. <laughs> Consequently, the advancement in computer science waited until there were terminals and we had modems and all the stuff. But that was already fun because that was interactive and uh, happily ever after I remain a computer scientist. So you were in the States and you were starting at USC and fast forward to 1993, you were a scientist, you were working for this company and you and your friends decide to leave the company and start your own company or net. Back then, before Israel became the startup nation, it wasn't so trendy or popular. Can you take us to the stories behind starting Ornet? It was a med race at that time because most of the data communication equipment was pretty dumb like uh, taking a yellow cable and sticking nails into it. But it, very fast, because of the number of units that were connected, it became sophisticated with management, with dashboards. Okay, so you're in this rapidly changing industry and computers start talking with each other. And that led you to start Ornet. How did things begin for you? So my friends and I, we started the company in January 1993, and the, the, the market was changing very fast. And we were pretty self-assured. We know what we need to do. We didn't know exactly how much it will cost. We didn't have exactly knowledge how fast the market will change. We didn't know what the other competitors are doing. We knew what will be superior to what they're doing. Eventually, we created plugs that uh, connect into the network. And I'm very curious about the name uh, Ornet. Does it have any uh, relations to Orna? We all did the work together, but I was the front. And because I was the front, we also named the company temporarily Ornet. We were planning to put a real name, but then my friends decided that it's a good name and, and they left it. Who helped you most during those early days? Our chairman, who was my mentor, he was really good in the sense that he did not do the work for me. And uh, I always uh, say that uh, mentoring saved me the cost of uh, business school. Ornet was sold to Siemens and you chose to pivot and work for the government. Quite different and probably the opposite of being an entrepreneur. 
Tell us how Natan Sharansky, one of Israel's most prominent political figures, and Israel's chief scientist at the time, Shuki Gleitman, eventually brought you in. I did not apply for the job of chief scientist. I was asked to come to the job. I say that I'm not suited for a job in the government because I am an entrepreneur. Natan Sharansky called me to tell me that he would like me to, to take the job. And he said, you know, it has a very high Zionistic impact. This really made me turn my heart around and ask Shuki Gleitman to talk to my kids. I told him, look, for three years, I wasn't at home because of the startup. My kids uh, didn't see me. And it's really a question of how they feel about it. I suggested to talk to my kids. So he came to talk to my kids. And my daughter, she said, in our family, each person does what he's good at. And if mom sent you to ask us, potentially she's interested. And if she's interested, it's good that she will do it. And that was it. And thank God she said yes. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your time as the chief scientist of Israel? This was very interesting from the perspective of knowing that I'm not really well suited for the job in my mind, but discovering the most interesting horizon. I met everybody from academia, from industry, from uh, defense. I discovered biotechnology and I discovered academic institutes and variety methods of interconnecting uh, knowledge. And it became really tremendous opportunity. And I enjoyed it and I fought for it. The grand feeling of making something that works for every geography within the state of Israel is amazing. Even though I was involved in multiple startups afterwards, the sense of uh, magnitude is related to the public sector. I assume uh, working for the government, there were a lot of frustrating moments. Can you uh, share a story where you were either very frustrated or the, the challenge was just too big to handle and, and maybe even made you think about quitting? Quitting was not really an option because I'm a winner. I remember a stupid minister and that minister was running an office with a budget that was maybe one-seventh of uh, the budget that I ran and invited me to a meeting uh, and the guy tells me that he wants to consolidate science. At that time, the Ministry of Finance was not very for it and I asked whether he was familiar with science policy, say, in Finland, which is a similar country. And the, I saw that this was too long a sentence. The guy was not focused on the topic. He was not focused on science policy. He was focusing on political matters. And then he asked my personal aide and his advisors to leave the room. And he looks at me straight and he asked me, why don't you dye your hair and why don't you put makeup? It... it uh, It makes a stiff impression. Say that I'm for the uh, natural look, which is bullshit. I don't care. I just personally, I don't uh, dye my hair and put makeup. I'm not against it. And from that point on, whenever he invited me for a meeting, I sent one of my deputies. I never went back to, to meet him. There were other events that people came into my office and they would ask me, where does the chief scientist sit in masculine term? 
Oh, so you mean that they would say in Hebrew Hamad Anarashi, which is masculine, instead of Hamad Anit Arashit, which is feminine. That's irritating. And then what? So I would show the door where the, where my office is, and uh, this was always a very good thing to start a meeting with because they were ashamed of themselves that they didn't even know who they are coming to meet. You had a long career after you left the government working in venture capital and then at Dell EMC. But something else also happened along the way. You were diagnosed with cancer a few years ago. Can you tell us a little bit about the journey of being diagnosed to being cured? At the end of the day, I don't think that there is a cure. Because of the type of the cancer that was really very aggressive, we knew that the likelihood that I will live between three to five months. So my first decision was to do everything in Israel so I can spend more time with my family. Something that was good, even during the, the biological treatment, the Academy of Sciences asked me to start leading the committees. I think that this was a gift, that I was able to do something that I really love. And all of that together put me in a position that I can continue to operate, even though I'm now over 71. Look, in the, in the last five and a half years, I need to be grateful to my doctor and to many other doctors that supported me and such. But at the end of the day, the truth of the matter is that I didn't give up and I drove the fight against cancer. Women, if you want something in a particular way, get it. Wow. That's a very powerful story. And I'm happy to hear that you're doing better. And in particular, your last comment leads to my next question. A few years ago, it came out in the news that you were a victim of spouse abuse. And I remember reading it and I was very surprised because... I always admired you and looked at you as one of the most prominent women leaders in the country. And I assume it was pretty challenging for you to, to go publicly about it. And I just wonder what was the reason behind it. My son was asked about women to talk about violence, family. And he recommended to a colleague of his to actually interview me. This was a very short interview, and the woman before me said, we need to protect the weak. Now, this blew me off because it's not about protecting the weak. We need to prevent abuse. Then I said, guys, we need to prevent abuse. I was abused. My opinion about being abused is that the person who needs to be ashamed is the abuser. So this was not so hard for me to talk about it. It was more consideration of my children. Then I left. Then the woman called me when I was on my way home, and she asked me whether I will be willing to give a talk the following day in Microsoft. It was full of people and uh, pictures afterwards. And then she said, the second channel on TV wants to interview you. And I said, I want to do that with my children, or at least one of my children. And indeed, my central daughter, Yael, joined me for that interview. And that gave also the perspective of the children, because the children are torn in a situation. They don't feel comfortable to completely see it the way I see it, because they also try to protect their lives and understand the father. Regardless, they're pretty clear about what uh, happened. 
Afterwards, people came back and asked me to talk about it again. And I said that this is not going to be a topic that I will be lecturing in. This is a topic that uh, people who want to know what happened have already very full references. But uh, it's definitely not something that I'm trying to hide because from my perspective, enough is enough. And to end, I'm going to ask you a few quick questions that I ask each of our guests. What is the one thing that most people get absolutely wrong about you? I heard many times that I'm very tough and uh, I don't recognize that it's true. Why do they think that? Because of being a woman in a masculine environment and being a go-getter. What are you most optimistic about? Science. Science is the thing I'm most optimistic about. And I hope that we shall take it not only to create wonderful technologies and healing in medicine, I hope that they will take it to environmental issues and will save the world because it's in a very poor shape right now. And last but not least, what piece of advice would you give to Orna, to yourself, when you just started your leadership journey? Be focused on what you want to achieve and be focused on how you want to achieve. Dr. Orna Berry, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for hosting me, Gil. You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter, where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up, and you can also follow us on Instagram, at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrex Studios. iTrex is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit itrex.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Ellie Blyer and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening and Litraot. See you next time.